Beloved, if you would, please turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning. I've entitled the sermon, Why the Incarnation. It just happened in God's providence. Uh, one week removed from Easter, we would be thinking about the, the enfleshment, the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead when he assumed our nature. You see, that's what it required for us to be saved, right? Man had sinned. Man was unable to pay for his sin. And yet there was a, a sacrifice provided in Jesus Christ, the God-man, who was upheld by his deity to pay the price that man owed. Let's listen now to God's holy word as I read for us verses 14 to 18. Of Hebrews chapter 2. This is God's holy, infallible word. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy or render inoperative or nullify the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, to deliver, to free from all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps, takes hold of the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thus far, the reading of God's infallible and errant word. Let us pray and ask his blessing. Our Father, we thank you for your word. You've given us all that we need for life and godliness what we are to believe and what duty you require of us and what great comfort this word brings to us that we have a, an elder brother in heaven who was made like us in all ways and was tempted like us, who endured suffering without sin that he might live in our trials, the one who takes hold of us even in the midst of our difficulty and our struggle and our trials and our sufferings and temptations this side of the new heavens and new earth. We would pray now and ask that your Holy Spirit would come and be our teacher and bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart. We pray this in the one who is the Lord, our rock and redeemer, even Jesus Christ. Amen. The famous theologian B.B. Warfield said this about the incarnation. He says, the glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but the God-man. The beauty and the wonder of the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God to rescue mankind is hard to wrap our minds around. Early on in the church, it struggled in how to affirm both natures within the one person of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, many denied that Christ was fully divine. Arius, the heretic, said as great as Jesus was, he was less than God, not of the same substance 
of the Father and the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, there were some who denied his full humanity. It was called docetism, right? They only believed that Jesus seemed to be man. They thought that it would be unworthy for Christ, having a Greek mindset, to clothe himself with flesh, much less to die in the shame and weakness that was the cross. The first century council came together in Nicaea in 325 AD and affirmed the clear teaching of Scripture regarding both natures, affirming both Christ's divine and human nature, saying, He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, was made man. Here in Hebrews chapter 2, we have the clear testimony of Christ's full humanity as well as his divinity. In chapter 1, verse 8, we're told as the preacher, the writer, the author of the Hebrews writes, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, as he refers to Christ, God's final word. And here in verses 14 to 18 of chapters 2, we see Christ, the Son of God, partook of flesh and blood, becoming a merciful and faithful high priest to save his people from their sin and to freeing them from the bondage and power of the devil and the fear of death. This morning, I want us to reflect on why it was necessary for the Son, the, the second person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, to assume our humanity, to assume a human nature and a body like ours. Why is there such solidarity? Why does the author to the Hebrews go out of his way to, to paint for us this picture of solidarity with Jesus Christ, the God-man, with his people, those he came to redeem? So I'd like to look at this text under these three simple headings. The Son of God was like us, He is for us, and He is with us. So He's like us, He's for us, and He's with us. So first, the Son of God like us, verse 14, look there in the word of the living God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. You see, beloved, from the start, out of the gate, it's vital for us to understand that God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, assumed our humanity in its totality, in everything that it is to be a man and woman as image of God, was assumed by the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was true man. He was like us in all ways except for sin. You see, the Son of God did not think it too lowly to assume our humanity. To assume our humanity, right? We're always seeking to reach for the stars and reach for the next new thing or to improve ourselves, to get ahead, to make ourselves look better than everyone else. But here is God of God, begotten, not made, of the same substance with the Father and the Holy Spirit, not thinking it was too much for him to, to grasp hold and to cling to, but made himself man. 
He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right? We're always grasping. Man has been grasping since Genesis 3 after power and glory. And here is God taking flesh that we might learn what it means to be man. Now, if, I don't, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. For that's exactly what he did. He took to himself our nature that he might make himself capable of dying. As God, he could not die. For you see, beloved, we're told in verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the the children of the the offspring, the, the seed of Abraham. You see, the Son of God took upon Uh, himself, the nature of man, not angels. He came to represent the the children of Abraham, those who by faith in the Old Testament look forward to the Messiah who was to come are the children of God. And likewise, those who now, looking back on Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished by faith are the children of God, children of Abraham. Those of the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham. You see, he did this for us. And this word help here is, he says, it's not to the angels he helps, but to the children of Abraham, is literally to to take hold of in order to help. He took hold of us as that great captain of our salvation, as that great pioneer who's gone before us into heaven. He takes hold of us and he brings us along, as as it were, in the, the battlefield of life, in the history of humanity. The God-man says, come with me. I'm the captain of your salvation. He takes hold of us and he helps us. And it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve restore to us the glory that is and was in Adam prior to the fall. Galatians 4 says, He came in the fullness of time, born of a virgin under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive Adoption. You see, it's not enough that we're just forgiven. The slate is wiped clean, right? That we have imputed righteousness. As great as that is in that great doctrine of justification, the article upon which the church stands or falls, that would be wonderful in and itself, right? Just to be brought back to be a servant in the Father's house. Oh, just to be a servant. No, 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 no. Our God is too great. His love is too marvelous, too wide, too deep too high. He says, no, you're not going to be brought back as just a servant. You're now a son. You have all the rights of a son. You have the son's ring. You have the son's robe. You have the son's sandals. You have the son's benefits and all that it entails. You see, that is what he's done. You're a son, beloved, in Jesus Christ. He's given you the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit within you cries, Abba, Father, just like a little two-year-old, oh, Daddy, Oh, Daddy, I'm so glad you're home. You've been gone all day. I'm so grateful. I love you, Daddy. You see, that's the picture, men, that our God gives us in the Word of God and His heart and His affection for His children. Fully God, fully man. He came to declare His solidarity with us. We're told that He had to share our humanity. Yes, as God the Son, He was all-knowing. He was all-powerful. He was all-present. He was equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, but none of these. He was none of these in his human nature as the last Adam. You see, as the last Adam, he hungered. 
right? Just like you. Maybe some of you are there hungering right now, wondering, when is this sermon going to be over so I can get home and eat? Maybe some of you have stayed up too late last night, and you're wanting to stay awake, but the eyelids, the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. You're nodding off, right? You know, I can see you, right? You know, not always. Oh, to be seen, though, right? To be seen, to be known. God knows. Jesus Christ hungered. He was sleepy at times. He was even moved to anger at times. A righteous anger, yes, when he cleared the temple twice. Remember, he was so so angered by the the fact that the, the Lord's temple that was to be a house of prayer for all nations. That blood that would atone for the nations of all tribes and kindreds and tongues was now turned into a marketplace. He goes in and he overturns the tables in his anger, righteous anger. He even wept at a friend's grave, right? He was moved with great compassion. It's not theologically abstract, right? We, sometimes I think, so, we, we, think we, we get so sophisticated and, and, and so sophist in the way that we think of theology that, that God is somehow removed. He just becomes this theological abstraction as an idea. But the incarnation tells us that God is drawn near. He is like us. He understands. He, he knows what it's like to get up on Monday morning. He he knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. He knows, above all, the perfect God-man. Can we explain it all? No, we cannot. The uniting of two natures in one person without confusion, as our confession says, without change and division or separation is mysterious. It's incredibly profound. Luther says this, give up all your pondering and fall on your knees. (laughs) You see, it should drive us to worship to adoration, to look at the marvel of creation and think, my God knows, he made it all, he understands me, he knows me, he, he's walked where I've walked, he's been tempted as I've been tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Wesley says it leads us to get lost in wonder, love, and praise, you see. If your theological sophistication does not drive you to doxology, then you need to go back once again. And get in the word of God. It is doctrine understood rightly by the mind and the heart that leads us to poetry, to hindity, to song, to wonder, to lostness, to glory. Where are all the wanderers gone? Where are all the dreamers? Right, JB? Where are the dreamers? Where are the poets? You see, the gray skies of this world have cast their shadow over our, our heart, over our creativity. I was telling a saint this week that intellect, rather um, creativity is just intellect having fun. You see, that's all it is. Just having fun. Thinking about the glories of God. The simplicity of it. The profundity of it. The, the wonder of it. The glory of it. Not explanation, but worship and wonder. Saints, the picture of Christ in the Gospels is that there has been never a man like this man, and never a man who was more human than Jesus Christ. Beloved, the union of God 
and man. Two natures and one person will fill our hearts and minds with wonder throughout all eternity. You know, you see, we'll, we'll still be finite. Now, there'll be more knowledge. In some ways, that knowledge will be perfect. But it will still be knowledge as a creature. In that sense, it will always be growing in 10,000 years from now. A million years from now, we'll still be getting lost in the wonder and play, praise of the God-man. But within one person, there are two natures forever joined. So that's God with us, or like us, rather. That was God like us. Let us look now to God for us. That's the second point, the Son of God for us. We're told in the second half of verses 14 to 15 that the Son of God partook of flesh and blood, that through death, now listen, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now here we're given, beloved, the very purpose. We're given the answer to the question I pose in the beginning of the sermon, why the incarnation? We're given the very purpose for the incarnation of the Son of God. That the Son of God took to Himself all our weakness, all our mortality, that characterizes our human existence, that He might come to die to destroy the power of the devil and to deliver His people from the slavery of sin and the fear of death. You see, he was born to die. Christ was born to set the captives free. Free from what? He tells us in the text, doesn't he? Free from the devil who, after the fall, holds the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve under his dominion. That's why he's called the ruler of this age. He's actually called in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God, little g, of this age. And this God of this age has blinded the minds of those fallen in Adam to see the glory that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, two natures in one person. He wields the power of death over the sons of disobedience, you see. Since the fall of Adam, the devil has tormented fallen humanity through the fear of death. You see, death and judgment are the devil's weapons. He uses these weapons to keep us in a state of fear. Death is the enemy that haunts us all. Even the famous atheist, do you remember Christopher Hitchens? Remember him? He wrote for Vanity Fair. I don't know how many people in here are reading Vanity Fair. Maybe some of the Atlantic and others, the New Yorker at times. But Vanity Fair, he was one of the leading writers for Vanity Fair. He died in 2010 of esophageal cancer. In his last column in Vanity Fair, entitled, He Believes in the Trial of the Will... Right, so Miles, he's a Nietzschean. He's a Nietzschean. He believes in the Superman, that man can, there is no barrier that man cannot climb. Right, we need to throw off the fetters on the dogma of Christendom and Christianity. But he wrote this article called The Trial of the Will, where he reflects on the reality of death. Because he's dying. Maybe some of us are dying. 
I think all of us are. But maybe some of us don't even know it. But he's dying. He has esophageal cancer. He says this. He's a profound writer. Just like Frederick Nietzsche was. Profound. Wrong, but profound. Death has this much to say for it. You don't have to get out of bed for it. Wherever you happen to be, they bring it to you for free. He continues. One thing that a grave illness does is make you examine familiar principles and seemingly reliable sayings. And there is one in particular I am no longer saying with quite the same conviction. I have stopped announcing Nietzsche's quote, whatever does not kill me makes me stronger. Saints, death, particularly your own death, has a way of sharpening the mind, focusing the mind. And I ask you this morning, this morning, are you fearful of death? (laughs) In Jesus Christ, now, church, lift your head and look at me. In Jesus Christ, you don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear death. Jesus, by his death at Calvary, now listen, rendered the power of the devil null and void. The sting of death is sin. The Word of God says that. You saw it last week, right? Think about that. The sting of death is sin. Now think about the gospel. Christ died for sins. The ground of the devil's accusations against you have been removed. How is he going to condemn you when there's nothing there to accuse you and to condemn you of? He bore the sting in his own person. Just like dad in the car in the summer, right? JK, right? You're in the car, you go into the beach, the bee gets in the car. Air condition's on, it's 98. You're like, what are you going to do? You're going to pull it off on 95 and try to get the B out? Well, you might do that, but, you know, that's, there's dangers with that. Or perhaps dad just steps up and said, I'll take the sting. I'll take the sting, kids. So you don't have to bear the sting. Because once the stinger's gone, there's no more sting. Church, if you don't hear anything else today, you hear this. Christ took the sting. Kids, I got this. He took the sting. The full force of the sting. The sting of death is sin. Sin has no power over you. He bore it in his own body. For you see, it is God who justifies you. Who is he who condemns? The the, the devil's a liar. He's going to tell you you're condemned. Outside of Jesus Christ, you are condemned. And if you're here today and you're not in Jesus Christ the same way that Noah and his family were in the ark, then you still have the sting that remains called death. But for you who are in Christ, for you who are in the ark, 
of Jesus Christ, there's no longer a sting. You're going to die. But now in Jesus Christ, as a believer, death is a gateway into life eternal. For to live is Christ and to die is what, my ruling elders? Gain. Now, death is not fun for those who remain behind. Right? We mourn. Catherine will mourn one day when I go to heaven. We'll mourn. But we'll we'll mourn with uh, the hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, playing in the background. Right? We we have this strange thing about us that we, we mourn even while there's hymnody playing. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. Catherine will sing, even as the tears go down her eyes, she will miss me. But I will be with the one who is gain, Jesus Christ. Because the sting of death is sin, and sin is no more. For those in Christ, the threat of death no longer brings fear, but expectation. Listen to Westminster Confession, larger catechism, question number 85. It's... It's important we get this. I think sometimes as thinking, thoughtful, cerebral, Presbyterian types that we are, we don't catch oftentimes the significance and the pastoral sensitivity of our doctrinal statements. Listen to this, question 85 of the larger catechism. The question is as follows, and I'll give you the answer. Death being the wages of sin... Why are not the righteous delivered from death? Sing creator goes, yeah, that's a good question. That's a great question, isn't it? That's like a, a seventh, seventh grader goes, yeah, that's a good question. If my sins are forgiven and death is the wages of sin, then why am I still dying? They answer, the righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day. Now listen to this. And even in death are delivered from the sting and curse of it. So that although they die, yet it is out of God's love to free them perfectly from sin and misery and to make them capable. Now listen, make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory, which they now enter upon. To die is gain. It was a PCA pastor, believe it or not, was preaching that verse from Philippians. He died in the pulpit as he was preaching it. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Boom, he was gone. Christian, at the cross, Jesus abolished death, the sting of death, through his own death and brought life and immortality, rendering Satan and his weapons useless. For the Christian, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But yet, as good as that is, right, that's, that's great. You could stop the sermon there, and many of you are saying, why not? But I'm not going to stop, because there's more. Verse 17 gives another reason that the Son of God partook of the flesh and blood for the children of Abraham. Look what it says there in 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation. For the sins of the people. You see, in the Old Testament, the priests represented God before man. 
Just as importantly, the priest also represented man before God. Christ became man so that he might represent us, just as Adam represented us there in the garden. But unlike the priest of the Old Testament, notice that Christ, unlike the priest in the Old Covenant, the shadows of the Mosaic Law, who would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, in Leviticus 16, once a year, whose blood did he take into the Holy of Holies in the Old Covenant? The blood of an animal, an innocent animal. But notice this, beloved, listen. Christ takes whose blood into the Holy of Holies, which the Old Covenant only typified and foreshadowed. He takes human blood, man, into heaven. Blood. Blood of the God-man into heaven itself and brings it to the Father. Your sins are forgiven. You're made whole. Your high priest has made propitiation for your sins. Christ died not merely to wash away your sins, but to pay the debt you owed. He bore in his own flesh the wrath of God, the justice of God. The perfect wrath of God. The beautiful wrath and justice of God was born by the Son of God. That all evil, that which is antithetical to all goodness, as Augustine would say, that which is contrary, in that sense, evil is just, uh, there's no no there there with evil. Because evil has to borrow goodness. It has to pervert and corrupt goodness. He bore it in his own body as God cursed it in Christ that you might be forgiven. The innocent one became the guilty one. He was crucified that we, the guilty, who deserve death might be pardoned. But you ask, could there not have been a simpler, more easy way, a less complicated way? Beloved, there was no way to save sinners in any other way. You see, our salvation required nothing less than God becoming man and dying as the sinner's substitute. Only man could suffer and die for the sins. Only God could overcome and vanquish death. You know who Anselm is? He lived 1000 A.D. He wrote, Why the God-Man? It's a profound little book. We read it in seminary. Make great Sunday afternoon reading. He says in this book, Why the God-Man? It could not have been done unless man paid what was owed to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus, it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person so that he, who in his own nature ought to pay and could not, should be in a person who could. That's profound. Philip Hughes says this, Our hell he made his, that his heaven might be ours. Never the way the cross was God, never such faithfulness as this. You see, the cross was God's pulpit where he preached (laughs) the love of God for sinners. 
Beloved, the Son of God had to be made like us that he might die and be raised for us. That leads us lastly to our final point. The Son of God with us. Like us, for us, with us. The Son became man, verse 18, because he himself has suffered when tempted. Notice what it says. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Why? Because he himself has been through it himself, right? He's been through suffering. He's been through trial. He's been through the fear of death. For him, it was a real fear. As a faithful and merciful high priest, Jesus has been where you are. He has been tempted in all ways like us, that he might come to our aid in our time of need. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to suffer. He's been there. He understands. He knows. You see, his solidarity with us is not merely some theological abstraction that guys like to sit around in windowless rooms and drink scotch and talk about the hypostatic union of man and God in the person Jesus Christ. As great as that is, and I love to do it, it's more than that. He knows. He understands you. He gets you. He's been there. Now, remember now, he's writing to these believers there in the first century. Jewish believers primarily. Some Gentile believers in Jesus Christ Messiah. But they're contemplating returning to Judaism. Because Judaism is the accepted religion. It's the status quo. They don't want to be persecuted. You just kind of want to fly under the radar. You don't want to identify with those saints that Nels prayed about in North Korea and Sudan and Northern Africa. You know, just kind of lay low. Just not raise your head because it's whack-a-mole, right? You don't want that. It would be so easy to go back to what's known. But he tells them, no, you can't return. You can't trample underfoot the very blood of Christ that, that purchased your salvation, percent fixed on the author and the finisher of your faith, by, by keeping your eyes on the one who's able to help you, who understands you, who mediates this great covenant for you, not with the blood of bulls and goats, who took his own blood into the holy of holies, right? It wasn't borrowed blood. He didn't ask for a, you to give the blood. He said, I'll give my own blood. No greater love than this than a friend lay down his life his friends, right? And that's what he did. He laid down his life for you, that he might take his own blood into the holy of holies to plead your cause, that your sins might be forgiven, that your wandering heart might be sealed for the day of redemption, that your heart that sits there now condemns you, that his blood is greater, it cries a better song, it sings a better song than your haphazard, weak devotion your theological sophistication cannot serve you, cannot save you. Jesus Christ, the God-man, gets you. He can save you, and he has saved you. And he's saving you now, and he's going to finish what he began. He's going to bring you all the way home. Beloved, this is what he's going to do. He's the adult in the room. He's the high elder, right, the ruling elder, the teaching elder. He's the deacon who serves. It's all about him. 
That's why we get lost in the love and the wonder and the praise. We say, who is a God like this God? But maybe you say, but Jesus, he was perfect, right? He could flip a switch, right? He could just put on the divinity cape. But beloved, this is exactly why he's able to help you. Bill Pugh says this, Jesus knows the full force of temptation in a manner that we who have not withstood it to the end cannot know. Saints, Jesus knows far more about temptation than we do because he endured far beyond the point where the strongest of us gives in to trial in temptation. He endured to the very end. Jesus knows the angst, the sorrow of human experience. He knows temptation, not just in general, but temptation to sin even in the face of suffering there in the garden. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He did not in his human nature want the cup. And yet not my will, but your will be done. He drank the cup. He emptied the cup for you. The Son of God emptied the cup of God's holy wrath against your sin for you and for His church, His bride. God the Son assumed our humanity for a little while and was made lower than the angels and is now crowned with glory and honor. Perhaps this morning you're struggling with some besetting sin crying out, wondering where God is. Wondering if God can help, if God understands. Beloved, Jesus Christ is able to sympathize with you in your weakness. He's able to help. He's, he's able literally to take you, as it were, by the arm and say, come with me. I've conquered this for you. I purchased you. I've forgiven you. Sin shall not be your master. Parents, when our children are crying out for help, first, right, the first, particularly the firstborn, not so much after the first one. Right, they're crying out for help. It's 3.30 in the, after, in the evening, in the morning. I mean, yeah, in the morning. I, I'm so confused even now. In the morning, they're crying, right? They, you're, you're just, it's, they're calling. You're just like, oh, no, I want to lay here. I got to lay here. The child doesn't need me. I, I can, you know, the child will survive. That's the picture. We cry out. And the heart of God moves to his people. He hears your cry. He sees you struggling with sin, young person. When it's not cool to stand for Jesus. You ask him, Jesus, give me strength to stand for you. To be pure for you. To not be you know, sexually immoral. To not fall into the, 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 the lion's den, the liar of, of you know, drugs and alcohol and looking for escape. No, Jesus hears you when you cry. That's the picture, right? Just as the parent drops everything to run to the aid of his child, so Christ runs to the cry of his people. Christ is able to trial this week. I read about a man by sending his Holy Spirit to enable us to endure in the face of testing and trial. This week I read about a man named Imam. He's a Christian brother in Iran. He's led over a thousand people to Christ. Christ. 
He's faced with many threats every day of his life. Waking up every morning wondering, am I going to be arrested today? Am I going to be beaten and perhaps executed for my faith? None of us know anything about that. He does. But he cries to Jesus, who's able to help. To pull him, to bring him all the way home. He says this, this is his attitude. He says, this is what he says. If I'm in prison, or if I'm put in prison, it must be because someone there needs to hear about Jesus. How do you explain that? There there is only one way to explain that. That a man died in April of approximately 33 A.D., 3 p.m., became sin for his people. God laid his hand on his son, as it were, and confessed our sin over his son. His sin born his body. That man was, had a spear put in his side to affirm that he was dead. His body's taken down by some ladies. And Joseph Arimathea, a very wealthy man of the day, comes forward and says, I have an empty tomb. We can put him there. They put him there. His body's wrapped. Laid in the grave. And then on Sunday morning... That grave is empty. That's how we explain it. It's because the grave is empty. And mom knows that. So if he dies, it's gain for him. It's sorrow for us, right? We lose a brother, we'll, we'll miss him. We're sorrowful. But it's gain for him. Are you buying God's calculus today? Do you do math the way God does? Do I? Does this preacher does? This poor preacher, does he do it that way? Not always. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to count all as loss that I might have you. That you might be that pearl of great price that I would sell anything to have you, Jesus. That's what discipleship is all. place where Jesus is all. And that's enough. That's what he's doing. He's growing you up to bring you to that place. Of Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. What's it say, church? I shall not want. You're grown up when you get there. I haven't arrived. But let's pursue him who loves us and gave himself for us. And took his own blood into the holy of holies for us. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was made manifest in the flesh. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness, your mercy. We thank you for this love. Such love as this has not entered into the heart and the mind of man. The profundity of it, the the depth of it, the height of it, the width of it. Lord, it is overwhelming. There's none like you. We praise you and we thank you and we pray. We would ask, we would pray for any in our midst this morning who do not know Jesus Christ. We pray for them that today would be the day of salvation. As they hear your voice and your holy word, they would repent 
and look to Christ and trust Him and His resume and what He accomplished, that He would be their portion. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.